Amongst Jewish people, Purim is not actually considered a, a very important holiday. It's considered a minor holiday. Um, I used to work for, uh, uh, I used to work in an IT department over in uh, Chandler's Ford, and my boss was an Orthodox Jew. And, and he knew about my interest, and one day I said, I'm taking a day off next week, it's Purim. Well, why are you taking Purim off? It's not a major holiday. I said, yeah, but I just like to remember. I just like to do something for Purim, go to shul or do something. And again, many years later, I had a, a group of friends, retired furniture salesmen from Chicago. They'd all retired to Las Vegas. In those days, I had a home in Las Vegas. And uh, they knew that I used to like to do something for Purim. And these were Reformed Jews, didn't observe very much at all. And they thought it was quite funny that someone actually liked to consider Purim a special holiday. Of course, a month later when it's Passover, guess who they asked to conduct the Seder for them? I mean, every Jewish person wants to celebrate Passover. It's, it's just the holiday. It's the time of year that they, they just love. Purim, it's not very special. And yet I feel like saying to all these people, no Purim, no you, you're not here without, without what Mordecai and Esther did in the 470s B.C., there will be no Jewish people today. There will be no Messiah. There will be no church today. We wouldn't be here. These are actually some of the most significant events that happened. This was um, the equivalent of Hitler's final solution on a grand scale. So last week we met the king of the Medes and Persian Empire, Xerxes, and he became king not because he was the oldest son of Darius, but because uh, his mother descended from Cyrus. So he was royal on both sides, and they made him king. And he's a man subject to his moods and his passions, and he's squandering vast, the vast wealth built by his forebears. We also met our unlikely hero and unlikely heroine, Mordecai and his cousin. Uh, she became his adopted daughter. Her parents were... Uh, she was an orphan. And he shows a certain nobility in raising this cousin as his own daughter and they appear to have a very good father and daughter relationship however if Mordecai had been in what got, was God's best for him he wouldn't have been in Shushan he would have been in, in Judea because the decree had been given to for the Jewish people to return to their land and uh, several thousand did but several millions stayed throughout the empire and, and this isn't as strange as you might think imagine for a minute if you're uh, let, let's pick a name out of the air. There probably is a real one, but we'll pick his name. Reuben Goldberg in New York City. And you're successful. You're a lawyer. And you have clients of all different peoples in, in New York. And you're an accepted part of society. You're successful. Your kids are going to go to college, be successful. Why go to Israel? Your kids are going to have to serve in the military. Your lifestyle is going to be reduced somewhat because Israel is not a wealthy country. It's getting wealthier, but nothing compared with... Uh, uh, our Western countries. So there's a real reason why Jews haven't poured back to the land of Israel. Now it is happening. God is slowly prompting them. And as we see anti-Semitism rising, God's using it to prompt people to return to the land. It is called making Aliyah. In the days of the temple, you go up to the temple and it was called Aliyah. And now they talk about making Aliyah to go up to the land of Israel. They sell their things in the host land, the UK or France package everything up and they, they go to the land of Israel and become citizens. It's called making Aliyah. And lastly, we met Haman the Agagite. Uh, Haman is a despotic enemy of the Jewish people and he descends from people who have always been vilely anti-Semitic. 
Uh, the Amalekites were always Israel's enemy, and he descends from their royal family, the Agagites. And if Saul had done what God had commanded him, the events we're reading about would never have happened. This, this man is alive because Saul spared his ancestor. And if Xerxes is subject to his emotions and passions, that was nothing compared to this guy. Uh, one man has offended Haman, and he wants to destroy a people. When someone's anger goes beyond all reason, you know that it's, it's demonic, and uh, if you feel that way, come and get prayer, because it's just not reasonable. Uh, sometimes we anger and we want to do something back to the person, even that's not God's best, but it's, it's a normal human reaction. Uh, but if you're angry with someone and you want to destroy everything about them, then that's, that's supernatural and it's, it's evil. Now, in Europe, uh, Adolf Hitler did enormous damage and caused untold suffering to the people, to the Jewish people of Europe who were under his power. And he conquered much of Europe and the Jews suffered terribly. But Haman doesn't have one continent of Jewish people. He has the entire Jewish population of the world under his control. Every Jew in the world at that time lived in the Medo-Persian Empire. So his final solution would have been a final solution. Haman. It tells us he was full of wrath and he sought to kill Mordecai and all the Jews of the realm. And he seeks an audience with the king and speaks ill of the Jews and advises the king to have all the Jews killed. Haman even offers to bankroll the project. The king is coerced and gives Haman his his ring as a sign of his authority. Now, Haman is moving in, in, in lies and untruth because any country that has a Jewish population has an asset. And they will work, they will pursue their careers, and they'll be a blessing to that country. Because anti-Semitism is rising in France, a number of Jewish people there are making aliyah, and there's a shortage of doctors in France. Well, anti-Semitism comes at a price. This ring is the king's signet ring, and it, when he pushes it into wax, the document that that's sealed carries the king's authority. So essentially, Haman's been given authority to act in the king's name. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. You remember that the empire covers everywhere from uh, the northeastern corner of Africa, the Sudan, uh, Ethiopia, and so forth, all the way through the Fertile Crescent and across Asia to the Himalayas. It's a, it's a vast area. And each one of these would have their own uh, royalties, their own leadership, and, and all of them... Uh, would have had representation in Shushan, would have uh, had access to the emperor. And yet Haman is made prime minister. He's above all these people. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning, concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. At the king's gate is a Torah-observant Jew, who only bows to the God of heaven. Then the king's servants, which were the, in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass when they spoke daily unto him, and he, he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. 
When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did reverence to him, then was Haman full of wrath. Now he has been hiding the fact that he's Jewish. He's a successful judge, sitting in the king's supreme court. He doesn't let anyone know who he is. But the pressure's on now. People keep asking him, why don't you bow to Haman, the prime minister? The, the law says you have to. And finally he says, I'm Jewish. I don't bow to, to mankind. I bow to the God of heaven. And the Jewish people were noted as monotheists who kept specific customs. So he's now marked out. And Haman, he thought it scorned to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had shown them the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot before Haman, from day to day and from month to month, to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. So he's choosing a month and a day when he's going to destroy the Jewish people. Haman is anti-Semitic. What is anti-Semitism? If a Jew and a Gentile don't get along, that's not anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is the irrational hatred of all Jewish people simply because they are Jewish. There was an amusing story I, I heard once. It's quite naughty, but in well-to-do society in England, uh, some folks met for, for dinner. One of them, unknown to them, was a Jewish lady. And they started murmuring about, you know, it's all the fault of the Jews, really, the troubles in the world today. And uh, she picked up a valuable object, dropped it, and it broke in pieces. And she said, what is it you have against the Jews? To which the host responded, well, nothing in particular. She said, well, you do now. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not the king's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries." Now, it's quite true that the Jewish people have their own laws. They live by Torah. But part of that code is to obey the laws of the host community. Just as in the New Testament, it tells us to be subject to those in authority over us. We don't, as a rule, break the laws of the country we live in. Now, if they say it's, deliberate to have, it's, it's illegal to have a Bible or some such, then we break the law. But normally... Part of our role as believers is to be law-abiding law people. And it's exactly the same with the Jewish people. They keep the laws of the country they're in. The first time I ever went to synagogue was in the Orthodox synagogue down in Portsmouth many, many years ago. One thing absolutely thrilled me, the, the message is given in English, but the liturgy is all in Hebrew, except for a couple of sentences. Right in the Hebrew, praying for... For actually, most of the Hebrew prayers are blessings. They're actually affirming to God what He is. The Jewish prayers are quite wonderful, but it suddenly switched to English, and they prayed for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her husband Philip, the whole of the royal family, and all those in, in authority over us in this country. And I thought, Wow, isn't that beautiful? And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, do with them as seemeth good to thee. 
This is a very careless man. He's not even thinking about what he's doing. It doesn't affect his own needs, his own passions. He doesn't seem to care. He doesn't even ask who this people is. He simply gives Haman the authority to go ahead. The king's ring meant that Haman could seal the documents with the king's authority. In effect, he held the executive power of the empire and could do as he wished. You remember way back in Egypt, Pharaoh gave his ring to Joseph. Oh, what a contrast between these two men, Joseph so faithfully serving Pharaoh. Then were the king's scribes called on the 13th day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were in every province and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof and according to the people after their language in the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. Now not only are they sending these, this, this message out by posts in many languages but actually there have been many alphabets, many forms of writing in Babylon, they had the cuneiform writing. Egypt, the hieroglyphics. Uh, in India, they had that beautiful squiggly script. And all this would have had to have been done by, by translators who understood uh, uh, the Persian Farsi and the languages of the, the provinces that these documents were going to. So it was quite a, a long process to do this. And Haman was in a hurry. He, he got now 12 months before his plot was going to, going to be hatched, before the day when he was going to murder every Jewish man, woman and child in the Persian Empire, which was all of them. And the letters were sent by posts into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill and cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all the people that they should be ready against that day. So the people are going to arm themselves, they're going to be ready to go and kill their Jewish neighbours, and the reward is they can then go and take their possessions. They've got some incentive to do this, although I imagine many of them couldn't understand what this was, was all about. And the commandment is now part of the immutable law of the Medes and the Persians. Once this law has been passed, it can't be reversed. The post went out being hastened by the king's commandment and the decree was given in Shushan the palace and the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Shushan was perplexed. It's a sad thing when, when the leaders of a country or a political entity can eat, drink, rejoice and be happy but the people outside are perplexed and frankly we're seeing a lot of that in the European Union these days. There are different people in, in that union who don't understand what's going on, don't understand why they don't have their rights, that they're being interfered with from a source of law that they, they don't understand. Uh, it's certainly difficult in the UK right now, and I have to think, uh, at one point, Italy was told how to run their country, Greece had them come in and tell them how to run their country, and the Catalonians certainly don't understand why nobody in Europe understands their plight. So chapter 4, the key chapter of the book of Esther. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So he went as close as he could to where his, his uh, cousin Esther was but couldn't actually enter in. <clears throat> and if this all seems distant, think what, for a minute how Jewish people would have felt 
on Reich Kristallnacht and, and during the time of Hitler's regime where the suffering of the Jewish people was, was legislated. They actually passed legislation what Jewish people could and could not do and gradually it worsened until the entire population was sentenced to death in the final solution. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it to her. When the queen, then was the queen exceedingly grieved and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. She wants him to enter the gate, so she sends him clothes. The change of clothes is not going to solve the problem. Throughout the entire empire, Jewish people are finding out at the end of that year, it will be open season on them. And with the blessing of the state, the enemies will be legally able to murder every man, woman and child and take their possessions. On the other hand, evidently the full impact of Hamer's decree had not at that, at that point been apparent to Queen Esther. Then called Esther for Hatash, one of the queen's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Hatash went forth to Mordecai into the street of the city, which, which was before the king's gate, and Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him, and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries to destroy them. Also, he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to, to show it unto, unto Esther and to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go into the king to make supplication unto him and to make request before him for her people. And Hatach came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. And again, Esther spake unto Hatach and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever whether man or woman shall come into the king, come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law for, of him. There is one law of him to be put to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai Esther's words. So this is an absolute monarch who takes his role very seriously. And he has his various... Um, cabinet members around him in the court and if anyone else walks in there uninvited the commandment is they're taken straight away and executed unless he holds the golden scepter out to them so glad that our God held the scepter out to us and now we come to the key verses of this book wonderful verses then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house and more than all the other Jews. See, all Haman has to do is point out to the emperor, you, you authorized this, you gave me the ring. The sentence of death is over her as well. It may have taken a while to find out that Esther was Jewish, but these things have a way of coming out, and the death sentence was over her. Verse 14, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this? Now Mordecai knows his Torah and he's read the prophets and he knows that God will deliver Israel. He's going to deliver the kingdom of Judah. He doesn't know how, but 
he also knows that his cousin is now on the throne. And maybe he's put her there for such a time as this. In, in this context, Esther, Mordecai is telling Esther that God, the God of heaven may have placed Esther in her position for just this emergency. But I don't think it's stretching the point to say, maybe we have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. The only people God has are people. Yeah? Maybe God brought Barry into his kingdom for such a time as this to be teaching Calvary Chapel Portsmouth. Maybe God put us here so that when young James has a need and his eyes are failing, we're the ones who pray for him. Maybe we're in the kingdom because when a brother or a sister is in need, we're the ones who can minister to them and help them. Perhaps we're in the kingdom for just such a time as this. Perhaps we're in the kingdom because our nation is going through a difficult time and we're the ones here to be praying for it at this very time. Then Esther bade them return to Mordecai this answer. Go, gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me. I neither eat nor drink three days, three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now this Jewish girl is starting to look like a real queen. She will do the right thing even at the cost of her life. If she steps into that court and the golden scepter is not raised towards her, the servants will immediately take away and execute her. But there's a risk she's going to take because of what weighs on her shoulders. And you will notice that prayer is not mentioned. It's one of the things about this book. God is not mentioned in the book of Esther and prayer is not mentioned. We know that God is there. And actually, I would hazard a shrewd guess that they were praying and the Holy Spirit has left that out to emphasize the fact that these people are under God's providence, but they're not where he really wants them. They're scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And really, he wants most of them back in Judea, where he has a role for them as a coming Messiah. Chapter 5, a royal banquet. Esther goes to see the king. He does hold out the royal scepter. I have a feeling, even though the marriage didn't start on a very good basis, it's purely on her physical appearance, he's actually growing quite fond of her because she's a woman of quality. Esther invites the king and Haman to a banquet. This is quite something. She's going to tell the queen what he wants, what her request is, but she's not going to accuse Haman behind his back. She is going to accuse him to his face. At the banquet, the king offers up to half his kingdom. I think that's an idiomatic phrase, but even so, it's emphasizing that she can ask for what she wants and he will grant it. He probably should have listened to what she wanted first, but he's a man who doesn't really... He's not ruled by logic, he's ruled by passion. Esther then invites the king and Haman to a second banquet the following day. Haman, full of pride and drink, marches home, only to see Mordecai refusing to bow. And Haman orders a gallows to be built for Mordecai. Now it came to pass on the third day, they've been fasting for three days, on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel, so she dressed as a queen, there's no mistaking who she is, and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight and the king 
held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Ahasuerus is showing favour towards his young queen. He's willing to grant whatever she asks, although we can be sure it shall be given unto half of the kingdom is idiomatic. Her Majesty Queen Esther wants to speak to the king in private. Moreover, she's not going to accuse Haman behind his back. He will answer to the charge immediately. This lady, as we say in American, has class. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther, and what is thy request? It shall be given unto thee to half the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Cause Haman to make haste, that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, and it shall be granted to thee? What is thy request, even to half the kingdom? Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, If I found favour in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my petition and to grant my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. Then went Haman forth that day joyful with a glad heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. And it seems as if Esther's losing her nerve, and you can't blame her. She's called them together to ask her request, and when she's got them both there, she fails to do it. This is a young woman, and this was was a lot. She's going to accuse a man of planning genocide against her people. And these are the two most powerful men in the world at that time. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent a call for his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things where the king had promoted him and how he advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. This man is very proud. He's been promoted to the top position in the kingdom. And he's showing off to his friends and he shows off about his wealth and his children and his position. And the crowning point is, Haman said, Moreover, yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the king unto the banquet that she prepared for but myself. And tomorrow I'm invited unto her also with the king. So he really thinks this is something special. The queen is asking to dine with the king and him. So he's been invited to a private dinner with, with, the, the, with the emperor of the world and his queen. No one else is invited. He thinks this is quite special. Yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. Oh, what a poor man. One fly in his ointment and that just upsets his, his little world that he's made for himself. He's a very small man, a pitiful man. And, and that, by the way, is typical of these people when... When um, after World War II, the, the Allies picked up the, the Nazi leaders and put them on trial, to a man they were cowards. Very, very weak people, very frightened of what the end was going to be that came on them. They inflicted vast suffering on untold millions across Europe, and yet they were so afraid for themselves. And then this, this, this is another one. This is Haman. Then said Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends unto him, let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou merrily, then go thou merrily with the king into his banquet. 
And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. So he's going to have gallows made more than 70 feet high. It's about 71 feet high for a normal human being. We'll guess he's maybe five foot six. The impression I get, Mordecai is not a particularly high man, not a particularly tall man. But he's going to be hanged way above the city on a gallows about 71 feet high. Depends how you measure a cubit, but if we take 17 inches, it works out at a smidgen under 71 feet. And his wife encourages this despicable behaviour. At least we can say they were well matched. And of course, a normal gallows is not, gallows is not sufficient for these people. They want to make a show of murdering Mordecai the Jew. And chapter 6. I love this chapter. On that night, could not the king sleep? And he commanded to bring the books of the records of the chronicles that were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of uh, Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hands upon King Ahasuerus. That night the king couldn't sleep, and when he couldn't sleep, to have him drop off, he didn't count sheep, didn't count a bed and pray to the God of heaven, pray to the shepherd. No, he had the minutes of the kingdom read to him. They were so boring they put him to sleep. And they turned to a particular passage. Hmm, could this be a coincidence? It's going backwards here. And the king said, What honour and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. He didn't get a member of the Persian Empire. Not even knighthood, nothing. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Evidently, neither of them could sleep, and Mordecai guessed the king was still awake. This didn't. This happened quite often. Shakespeare said, uh, "Heavy is the brow on which lies the crown." I may have that slightly wrong, but uh, someone in power is just waiting to be, be toppled. Especially um, Xerxes. He's not a good king, and then plenty of people who would like to remove him from that head, or actually remove his head from him. And the king's servant said unto him, "Behold, Haman standeth in the court." And the king said, let him in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, what shall be done unto the man whom the king delighteth to honour? Now Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to honour? More than myself. See, his pride is taking him somewhere he doesn't want to go. But pride cometh before a fall. And if I could borrow Dr. Emmett Brown's DeLorean and go back to one scene in Scripture... This would be it. Now, I know most of you are more spiritual than me. You'd like to go to Bethlehem, to the Tower of Migdal, and see that little baby being wrapped in swaddling coals. You'd peep over the shoulders of the, the shepherds who are bearing witness to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But, but me? I'm slightly less spiritual. I'd, li- I'd like to be one of the servants in that room to see Haman's face and see his demeanor and see his body language when he heard the next sentence. I just would. And Haman answered the king... For whom, and Haman answered the king, for, for the man whom the king delighted to honour, let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear, and let the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown which is upon his, the crown, and the crown, the crown royal which is set upon his head, and let this apparel horse be delivered to the one, to one of the king's most noble princes, that they array the man with all whom the king delighted to honour, and bring him on horseback 
through the street of the city and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honour. This is Haman's vanity shining. And I think there's a little more to this than meets the eye. Haman wants the nobility and the people to see him riding in the king's place because next time there's an assassination attempt, he wants that job and he wants the people ready to accept him. So he's, he's thinking, it's me that's going to be riding the horse on one of the king's servants and the people will see me in the, me in the king's place and I want them to get used to that. Maybe. We can only imagine what history would have been like if Haman had succeeded. Then said the king to Haman, and this is, this is the moment, oh, I'd love to see Haman's face at this minute. Make haste and take apparel and the horse, as thou hast said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth in the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Oh, the, the, the feeling in his stomach when he heard that must have been something. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and brought him on horseback through the street of the city. This is a man he was planning to hang a few hours later and he has to parade him through the streets of Susa saying, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honour. And when it was over, Mordecai came again to the king's gate, but Haman hastened to his house mourning and having his head covered. Oh, the proud have fallen. Haman has to lead Mordecai through the streets proclaiming, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honour. His own words. Oh, talk about eating your words. Now, they must have scratched their heads as Haman publicly honours his adversary. I mean, it was known the two men didn't get along. It was obvious to everybody. And as Haman returns home with his head covered in shame, his wife offers words of comfort. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh his wife unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but thou shalt surely fall before him. She's wise enough to know that the tide has turned. And his plans start to crumble. This is what the scriptures instruct us, and this is from Pastor Barry, this is not me, I found his study in amongst the notes, and I thought... Yeah, this is here for a reason. It speaks to all of us. Be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. From First Peter. The Gospel according to Matthew. And whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. And Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, about the role of a, a leader in the church. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Those of you know, who know me well know how challenging that verse is to me. Not given to wine, nor a striker. I think that's referring to someone who strives. Not greedy, a filthy lucre but patient, not a brawler or covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in a subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest he be lifted up with pride, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
And talking of Satan, who is really behind Haman? Who has been behind this plot to destroy the Jews all these years? Because if he can destroy them, God's plan is finished on this earth. It won't happen, but it doesn't stop him trying. He's speaking to Satan. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit down upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of a pit. He has exalted himself, but judgment is coming. And we left Haman talking to his wife Zeresh and his friends. And while they were yet talking came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. The morning is late and lunchtime is approaching. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said unto Esther on the second day of the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted thee? And what is thy request, and it shall be performed, even unto half the kingdom? Then Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favour in thy sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. Haman is planning to murder some of the most productive and useful people in the, in the kingdom. And there would have been a loss to the king, but Esther would have remained quiet. Then King Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he, and where is he, that does presume in his heart to do so? Not realizing the man sitting right next to him. This is an extraordinary book of extraordinary events. And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. Now is a decisive moment. Haman must face his own evil. And the king must face his own folly. See, they're both to blame in this. The king never asked, who, who is it, this people you want to destroy? He just let Haman do what he wanted to do. And the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went out into the palace garden. And Haman stood to make request for his life to Esther the queen. For he saw that it was evil determined against him by the king. The king stepped outside to think about this. This is a far bigger issue than he thought it could be. He knew Esther was coming to request something. And clearly it wasn't a new dress. It was something quite serious. But he had no idea it was of this gravity. His prime minister has been plotting to murder the king's people. And he knows he's been a party to it. So he goes outside to ponder what to do about it. The king returned out of the palace garden into the palace of the banquet of wine. And Haman was fallen upon the bed wherein Esther was. Then said the king, Will he force the queen before me in, my, in the house? And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, until fairly recent times, uh, even in the times of, uh, of uh, our righteous Messiah, people didn't sit around a dining table. It was a low table. You had couches, and you kind of laid next to the table. It seems odd to us, but that was the custom for a very long time. So... When it says she was laying on the bed, it's because they had these, these couches where you kind of recline next to your food. 
rather than the way we eat, where we sit facing it. And notice that as soon as the, the king's word is spoken, his servants know exactly what to do. And Haman is taken away. And Harbona, one of the king's chamberlains, said, Behold, said, said, said before the king, Behold also the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman hath made for Mordecai, who has spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Now, Haman's gallows. Many commentators stress that the gallows should actually be a cross. This, this I've got from Barry, by the way, Pastor Barry. Uh, because the Persians invented crucifixion. It wasn't a Roman invention, it was a Persian invention. And they, they suggest that, that Haman was impaled. However, in chapter 9, verse 13, we find that Haman's sons also hanged on the gallows. So it wasn't a cross, it was actually a gallows. But after they were dead, they were killed and then hung up. Uh, this was done as a public display. Quite common amongst ancient, ancient monarchs, it was a warning to other people to behave themselves. Certainly the, the, the kings of England would do the same thing. Uh, if someone who had been rebelling against the king, they, they would put their heads on a stake on London Bridge so that everyone passing through would see what was done. Gruesome people, but such was life in those days. And remember that the gallows are 50 cubits high. You take 18 inches to a cubic, 75 feet, 17 inches, it's about 71 feet. But, but seven-floor building, not, not, uh, not a small affair at all. So the decree has gone out, and the laws of the Medes and the Persians are irreversible. Once the law has been passed, it can't change. Back on the subject of, um, of uh, Haman's hanging, I think one of the most powerful verses in Scripture, we should all be reminded of it all the time because it will affect our lives. Galatians 6 verse 7, don't turn to it, it says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And boy, did that happen to Haman. And we see it in our own lives. So Esther is going to be granted Haman's estate. She then tells the king that Mordecai is her cousin. The truth is out, which is, which is good. It's always good for the truth to be out. The king then promotes Mordecai and gives him the ring that he previously given to Haman. So now Mordecai is act, acting in the role of prime minister. It's in much safer hands now. But the edict to kill the Jews is still in force and it can't be reversed. So Esther once again petitions the king. The key cannot be reversed, but it can be superseded. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day did the king Ahasuerus give the house of Haman, the, the Jews' enemy, unto Esther the queen. And you can imagine, he was prime minister. It would have been... He would have lived in some style. This was a very wealthy empire. So having his estate made her an enormously wealthy woman in her own right. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him, Esther had told what he was unto her. And the king took off his ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it unto Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So he has his own estate is looking after his cousin's estate and Esther spake again unto the king and fell down at his feet and besought him with tears 
to put away the mischief of Haman the Agagite and his device that he devised against the Jews. Then the king held out the golden scepter towards Esther, so Esther arose and stood before the king. So the king has already dealt with Haman and passed his entire estate to Esther, but, what, but that will not save the Jewish people. And he said, and said, if it please the king, and I have found favor in his sight, and if the things seem right before the king, and I be pleasing in his eyes, I think she knows the answer to that, let it be written to reverse the letters devised by Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews which are in all the king's provinces. I find it very interesting, in those years since the captivity, they first went to Babylon, and this is maybe uh, 90 years later now, they're actually all over the empire. They spread across most of the uh, civilized world at that time, not all of it, but uh, certainly the Persian empire, which was vast. For how can I endure to see the evil that shall come unto my people? And, or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then the king Ahasuerus said unto Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and him they have hanged upon the gallows, because he laid his hand upon the Jews. Write ye also to the Jews, as it liketh you in the king's name, and seal it with the king's ring, for the writing thereof, for the writing which is written in the king's name, and sealed with the king's ring, may no man reverse. So you go and write what you like, what was written before can't be reversed, but what you write can't be, re- be reversed either. Now Mordecai has the authority he needs to deal with the plight of the people, and he acts swiftly. The horses, camels, and donkeys have a lot of ground to cover in the coming nine months. It's only nine months before the destruction of the Jewish people, and to get from Susa all the way to Ethiopia or all the way to India is, is many weeks uh, riding on, on the back of an animal. Um, so he needs to move in haste. Then were the king's scribes called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, in the three and twentieth day thereof. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded unto the Jews and to the lieutenants and the deputies and the rulers of the province, which were from India unto Ethiopia, and hundred twenty and seven provinces, unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto, the, unto every people after the language, and to the Jews according to their writing and according to their language. So everybody now is being told, including the Jewish people, that there is a new law. Again, it's gone out in many languages and and many different scripts. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by posts on horseback, riders on mules, camels and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life to destroy, to slay, and to cause to to perish all the power of the people and provinces that would assault both them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. So now the Jews have been told to arm themselves against this day which is coming. And it's a very different different thing if, uh, if the state is behind what you're doing. Imagine when the... Um, Nazi party and German, German people turned against the Jews if actually the state had stuck up for the Jews it would have been a very very different thing and in this case now 
the Jews' enemies would have to act on their own. The state was no longer going to be behind them. The state was now behind the Jewish people, and they were told to prepare themselves for the 13th day of Adar at the end of the Jewish year. And remember, until this letter arrives, until until this new law is posted in the provinces, the Jewish people are living in fear. A man comes home from his work, and he looks at his wife and children, and he knows that at the end of the year, they will be dead. So they're living in fear of a coming day. And when they see this new law posted, it must be the most wonderful thing they ever saw. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all the people that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves against their enemies. So they can have their swords and their shields and their arrows and their bows and whatever they need to defend themselves against an onslaught of anti-Semitism. So the posts rode upon mules and camels and went out being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment. And the decree was given at Shushan the palace. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white and with a crown of gold and with garments of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. You remember when that other law was passed, the city was perplexed. They, they were going to see their Jewish neighbors murdered, and now the city's rejoicing. And the new prime minister, Mordecai, comes out from the king's presence arrayed in blue and white. Why blue and white? Those are the colors of Judaism. It's always blue with uh, either silver or white embossed in, in on it. Yeah, he's not hiding his Jewish anymore. The new prime minister is wearing, wearing his Judaism without any fear. Praise God. Not long ago, this man was wearing sackcloth and ashes. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the, joy, the Jews had joy and gladness. Our feast and a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews for fear that the Jews fell upon them. Many people converted to monotheism because they saw uh, how the Jews had prevailed. Haman's commandment brought despair and fear and sorrow. Mordecai's commandment brings light and gladness and joy. Chapter 9, the Feast of Purim. On the appointed day, the Jews then have victory over their enemies. 500 people die in Sushan and 75,000 throughout the empire. This becomes a national celebration throughout the realm. Gifts are sent and it becomes a day of joy. The Feast of Purim is thus now part of the annual Jewish feast calendar. Now in the 12th month, that is the month Adar, in the 13th day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to, to put in execution in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that Jews had rule over them that hated them. So anti-Semitism has been turned into a victorious time for the Jewish people. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on such as sought their hurt, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell on all people. And the rulers of the provinces, 
The lieutenants, the deputies, and officers of the king helped the Jews because of the, the fear of Mordecai was upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. Very much like Joseph when he served Pharaoh, he became a great man in Egypt. Now Mordecai is a great man in Media Persia. Um, the, the rulers of the various provinces, uh, out of fear or respect, are making sure that the Jews are supported in their fight against their enemies. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with, with the stroke of the sword, and the slaughter and destruction, and slaughter and destruction, and, and did what they would unto those that hated them. And in Shushan the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. And Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspartha and Paratha and Adalia and Aridatha and Parmashta and Arasa and Aridai and Vajasatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they. But on the spoil they laid not their hands. So the job that King Saul should have done, oh, well over 500 years before, has now been finished. The Amalekites are now gone. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace were, was brought before the king. And the king said unto Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the palace. The ten sons of Haman, and, and the ten sons of Haman, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. And, and what is thy request further? And it shall be done. So the king is quite amazed that, that the number of enemies the Jews had and they, they've been destroyed. Then said Esther, if it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Sushan to do tomorrow also according to un, unto this day's decree and let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. The king commanded, so it be done. And the decree was given at Shushan and they hanged Haman's ten sons. So that 71 foot high gallows now has 10 more bodies dangling from it sort of gruesome but that's how they were then for the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day of the month Adar and slew 300 men at Shushan but on the prey they laid not their hands but the other Jews that were in the king's provinces gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest from their enemies and slew their foes 70 and 5,000 but they laid their hands not on the prey. So they weren't doing this for the incentive of taking their possessions. They were doing it to save their own lives, to save the Jewish people from persecution. So those that would have murdered the Jews, it was turned around and, and, and they were executed instead. On the 13th day of Adar and on the 14th day of the same, rested they and made it a day of feasting and gladness, which of course it is until this day. A month ago, people were celebrating this very holiday. But the Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, day thereof and the 14th thereof. And on the 15th day, they rested and made it a day of, fast, of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwarred towns made the 14th day of the month, Adar, a day of gladness and fast and feasting, and a good day, a day of sending portions to one another. Different parts of the empire get the news at different times, but it becomes that period in Adar, the middle of the month, the 13th and 14th days, become a day of a, re, a time of rejoicing 
of feasting, and this is where the the um, tradition of charitable giving come in, comes in. Many um, synagogues have put out a box or a plate to for the people to give, and they will give it to charities at that time because it's, it's noted to be a time of the year for charitable giving. You rejoice in what you have, and then you share what you have. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, they should keep the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th month of, that, of the same yearly. As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, from morning unto a good day, they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions to one another, and gifts to the poor. And the Jews undertook to do as they had begun, and as Mordecai had written unto them. As a short version of Jewish history, it's three sentences. They tried to kill us, our God saved us, let eat, let's eat. That last one's quite important. Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast lots, cast per, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head, that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Wherefore, they call these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore, all the words of this letter and, and of that which they had seen concerning this matter and which had been done unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all all such as join themselves unto them, so it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to the writing, according to their appointed time, every year. And it's gone on ever since then. And that these days should, should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that, that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. So what would have been a day, an absolute nightmare, a day tragic in human history has turned into a day of rejoicing. Only God can do that. And we should rejoice because we're here this morning because of Purim. No Purim, no Messiah, no gospel. Isn't God good? And he sent letters unto all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth. Oh, this man is so different from Haman. This is God's man. We know whose man man Haman was. To confirm the days of Purim in their times appointed according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them and as they had decreed for themselves and for their seed the matters of, of fastings and their cry. So people to remember what they went through in those days. And the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. And the king, Ahasuerus, laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea, and all the acts of his power and his might, and the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai, whereupon the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So, sadly, they got a tax increase out of this. For Mordecai the Jew was next unto the king Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the multitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking peace to all his seed. The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. 
we see the silent working of God in human affairs. The modesty of Vashti and her convictions about exposing herself to the lustful eyes of men is needed is a needed example in our day. A little modesty wouldn't come adrift in these days. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? We see the destruction. We see the destructive influence of strong drink and the tongue and the conduct of Ahasuerus towards his wife. How many relationships break down through excess alcohol? Don't be given to wine. Even an Oriental moral reprobate like Ahasuerus appreciated the chaste beauty of the young Jewish virgin. Anti-Semitism is not a phenomenon of our century. Haman was the Hitler of his day. This was long before Pharaoh was. We see the influence of false pride in Haman who would kill a man who would not bow before him. In the Persians' law that could not be recorded, we see the foolishness of man. Organisational government that cannot admit it has made a mistake and correct its course. As I said before, I'm so glad that they can change laws in Westminster because some of them need to be changed. In Haman's evil plot, we see the meaning of Psalm 76.10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The story of this book is, is God's sovereignty. It's best if we're in the place where God wants us. We're rejoicing, we're praising him, we're part of what the Holy Spirit is doing. But that's not always the case. When I first came to heaven, 2010, September, feeling sorry for myself and licking my wounds... I wasn't in the best that God had for me. Actually, I, I do believe he put me in haven't. But uh, spiritually, I wasn't in the place he wanted me. And I, I didn't actually attend church for several years until I, until I met another commuter on the platform of Haven't Station, a gentleman by the name of Barry Forder. And yet, I can say that during that time, I could see God's hand in my life. God is sovereign. He will take you where he wants you to go. Those who know me at all know that I'm a, a sinophile. Um, it wasn't always that way. I remember years ago, a long time ago, I used to attend Walton on Thames Baptist Church. And uh, my, my girlfriend at the time said, Oh, my mum's starting a prayer group. They're going to pray for China. No, oh, that's nice. That's, that's a nice thing to do. That's very good. Didn't strike me as anything special at all. And it was some years later. I was attending a fellowship. We used to meet, some of you know Lizzie Ware, we used to meet in her flat on Great Portland Street. And uh, the first ethnic Chinese person I ever met was Wilfred Koo. Some of you have seen his pictures. And uh, I, I, I thought, this is, this is an interesting person. And so I said, Wilfred, tell me, he's from Singapore. I said, tell me, about, oh, nothing to learn about Singapore. There's Chinese and Malays, that's all you need to know. Well, thank you, Wilfred. Then a little bit later, I was working at Scripture Union, and there was a young man there, his, given, his family name was Lee. His given name to Yun On. It's a beautiful Chinese Christian. Very humble man, very quiet man. But we became friends, and he'd come over to my place to eat. And he, he was Malaysian from the state of Sabah. And he drew me a little map, and he said, This is Borneo. This is the state of Sabah. I'm from Kota Kinabalu, and actually I'm from a little village there, Tanjung Aru. And in my, my parents' house, there's an orange, orange tree in the garden. And he just, and it was just so thrilling hearing this young man talk about his home. And then he talked about his, his culture, his ancestors that had come from China and so forth. And I was just so thrilled learning this. And it wasn't very long before I met his friends and I found these lovely Christians and I just felt so much. I wanted to be praying for them. They're from this country of 
At that time, it was a billion people, and there were so few Christians. That's changed since then. Uh, I think in the 1990s, China had more Christians than the UK has, and now they have, uh, they have more Christians than the United States has Christians. So the change has been quite remarkable. But why I'm telling you all this is to say that God is in control. I have strong political feelings, and, and I read Chinese history. In, from 1911 onwards, there were forces at work in China. There was a, a democratic government and the Communist Party was starting to rise. And the Democratic government was led first by Sun Yat, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, then Chiang Kai-shek. They were Christians. Sun Yat-sen's closest friend was a Methodist minister, Charlie Sung. He married one of his daughters. Chiang Kai-shek was married to another one of his daughters, a wonderful Christian woman, Sung Mei Ling. She lived in three centuries. At 97 years old, she was still giving art exhibitions in New York City. They were believers. On the other side was an evil... A corrupt, very crude man. Mao Zedong was an awfully crude man. When he took over, instead of teaching Confucius in the schools, which is all about the golden rule and how you should live in a way it reciprocates what you want to see in others, they were, they were taught power comes from the barrel of a gun. And that's the sort of man he was. He was a very evil man. And, and inside, of, Lord, why did you allow it to happen? That a godly Christian man should lose that revolution and the communists take over. And then I realized something. China had been steeped in heathen religion, um, superstition, terrible superstition, just believing things completely contrary to the word of God. Um, if someone was in trouble, you wouldn't go to help them because you're afraid that their bad luck would fall on you. Worshipping heathen religions, uh, the, the most prominent being in Buddhism, which the true, a true Buddhist is an atheist. Well, what sort of religion is that? And it's steeped in, in superstition. And I believe the judgment of God fell on China because they were taken over in 1949 by a, a terrible government that slew God's people throughout the missionaries. They joked that Christianity is finished in China. And some of the missionaries said, unless a seed falls into the ground and die, it won't bear fruit. And they expected to see God do something. Well, when the Great Leap Forward failed and millions were starving, the Chinese people wanted something real. The superstitions didn't work anymore. And they were turning to the God of Israel, to Jesus the Messiah in vast numbers. And now, the Chinese government, they, they hate them, but they can't avoid them. They talk about some counties in China as being Jesus' nests. There are so many believers down there. So if, if my political instincts have been right, China would be no better off today than it was. And yet, the rule of the universe is sovereign. He overruled and turned... The, the country with the largest population in the world around and we will, in the New Jerusalem we'll see so many people there simply because God's wisdom was better than ours he caused the wrath of men to praise him what we thought was what I thought was a defeat was actually a victory for God he used the evil that came into power to turn men's heart around him. so God is sovereign he rules over all and in the book of Esther we saw him ruling even this people who weren't in God's best they should have been in Judea and yet, he used them where they were to save the Jewish people so that they would eventually live in the land and Messiah would come. That Messiah would give his life for us. Today, all over the world, we see Christian churches, people whose trust have been put in there, who are going to live in a new Jerusalem. So I thank God for Mordecai and Esther. They're unlikely heroes, but God used them. 
Well, thank you, Adrian, for that. And I think, you know, what a great lesson. A number of us are going through uh, difficult times at the moment. Uh, and I just, just end with one comment. I think I've said this a number of times while I was with Chambers, that if we learn to worship God in the trying circumstances, he can alter them in two seconds when he chooses. May God bless you through this coming week. Let's go have some fellowship together over teas and coffees. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you.